Hello, everyone. My name is Daniel Neff, and welcome to GBA's November Trade Policy Podcast. Today, we're joined by Justin McCarthy and Cleet Wilms from Aiken Gump. Thank you guys both for being here. So I'd first like to jump in with our latest news out of China. President Biden and President Xi held their anticipated summit on Monday, where they got to discuss a number of issues. So I'm wondering, what are you guys, uh, what are your initial thoughts on the conversation? Do you have any key takeaways? Sure. Uh, this is Cleet, and I'd be happy to to speak to this issue. Um, I think there weren't a lot of deliverables from the meeting, and, and people are asking questions about that. But I think that really misses the point. The The objective here for the Biden administration was really just to restart a dialogue with China. Um, there really had not been many conversations between our countries uh, towards the tail end of the Trump administration. And there was concern uh, on behalf of the administration that as this relationship grew more and more adversarial, that without lines of communication, you could be in a situation where you had uh, miscommunication, miscalculation, and ultimately conflict. And so really that was goal number one, number two, and number three for them was really to reestablish this, to, to help try to stabilize the relationship a little bit and prevent it from going down too far of an adversarial track. I would say that beyond that though, um, the administration does hope to achieve uh, cooperation with China, try to find a positive agenda in some narrow and targeted areas. Climate is one of the most prominent of those, but I also think issues like foreign policy in Afghanistan or North Korea are also at the top of their mind. And finally, I do think that the the president did want to raise with China some of the longstanding uh, concerns that the U.S. has about a range of issues, uh, whether it be Taiwan and the South China Sea, or whether it be um, some of the issues around trade and, and economic issues, uh, which include industrial subsidies, but also the implementation of the phase one deal. But this was primarily a, a mechanism to really start to start the conversation that had been lagging um, and really wasn't intended to have deliverables and certainly not in the trade and economic space. Yeah, this is Justin. I, I, I agree with all that. I think the sort of interesting thing, the most interesting thing about where we are now is what does this sort of mean going forward? And there is this sort of reticence to, you know, a, a more sort of formal dialogue process. And whether it's the SED or the S and ED type dialogues uh, that, that, you know, I guess we're criticized for, for not moving the ball forward, but I think we're, uh, you know, had value, you know, had value up to a certain point. But uh, are these going to be sort of informal talks? We obviously have a, you know, a check-in on phase one here uh, before the end of the year. Uh, is that going to be the sort of the, the center point of U.S.-China economic dialogue going forward? Is it going to be in that sort of context? You know, that's the sort of real open question going before, which is going forward rather, uh, is, is what does this mean? How are we going to interact, uh, the U.S. and China going to interact uh, on trade and and, and uh, international economic issues. Thanks, Ash. And that's actually a great segue into my next thought is because I'm I'm kind of wondering how that future is going to play out. Uh, it's good to see that cooperation, restarting that cooperation. But we've also seen people within the administration who have kind of pushed a little harder and say we need to go after China's use of industrial subsidies and unfair trade practices. But we've had USTR Ty say, no, let's stick to negotiations. We have a kind of schedule here. So um, I guess what are your guys' thoughts on maybe that harder line? You know, are is the administration going to be pushed to a point where they're going to pursue maybe those uh, harsher retaliatory measures against some of those industrial subsidies or other practices? 
So I, I really don't think those two issues are mutually exclusive in terms of pushing a harder line, but also wanting to negotiate first. And I think, as I understand where Ambassador Tai is coming from, it's this idea that, you know, there haven't been a lot of talks. She needs to have a conversation with China, size them up, see what they really think about their implementation of phase one, see whether she can get more out of them. And then once she has that information, make a decision about what they may or may not do on a Section 301 investigation into industrial subsidies. I will go out on a limb here and I'll predict that they eventually get there uh, and that they do eventually conduct that kind of investigation because that is a major concern of, of, of this administration. Uh, I also think they may find themselves in a position where um, because of litigation and, and other reasons, um, they're going to want to modify uh, the, the Section 301 list more broadly, and, and this 301 will give them a tool to, to do so. So I ultimately think they get there, and I think it's really just a question of, of sequencing and wanting to make sure that they, you know, they give China an opportunity to respond um, and to talk about the Phase 1 deal before they go down that, that path. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that, and I, I actually am, I think it's much more of a practical ideological approach to uh, uh, to the relationship. I think that it is uh, possible, perhaps even likely, that there will be new authority by the middle of, of, of next year. Uh, how do you get that new authority? You know, the easiest way to get that new authority and to sort of, A, make the tariff list your own, um, but also focus on the policy area that, that you think is, is, is most important, um, it would be to launch a new 301 investigation. And I don't think it necessarily has to be done in a sort of hostile sort of way. I think it can actually be done in a way that, you know, is part of this economic dialogue going forward. You know, that'll be tricky to land, but it doesn't doesn't mean it, it can't be landed. Great. Thanks, guys. And also, thank you for speaking to the possibility of a future Section 301 investigation as well. I think that's something that is in the back of everyone's minds. But switching gears just a little bit, but sticking with China. So... Um, the Senate's China-related legislation, USICA, uh, is kind of getting floated as a possible addition to the NDAA, um, but we know that the House kind of has their own outlook on this and how they want to maybe take that up as well. Um, but I'm wondering for you guys' perspective how companies maybe are addressing the legislation. I've seen some more reports that there's kind of an increased push against the legislation, or maybe that's just including it in the NDAA. Yeah, there's certainly that. Um, and actually, just uh, late last night, uh, with, uh, Majority Leader Schumer and Speaker Pelosi announced that uh, they were not going to try to attach USICA to NDAA, but were going to conference uh, conference the bills. Uh, there were a number of reasons why adding USICA to the NDAA bill was was going to be difficult. One is the sort of nature of the uh, of the NDAA being time sensitive and the sort of different approaches that you referenced as it relates to the House and the Senate uh, as, as how they're looking at these issues. Um, the other was simply a revenue uh, issue and, uh, and and would have been difficult to add USICA uh, in the form that it passed the Senate uh, with the tariff and revenue measures included uh, in there because all, all, all revenue bills need to originate in the House. So uh, that, that was going to be sort of tricky. Uh, Schumer sort of floated it out there, I think, to sort of get everybody's attention uh, and and create some sense of urgency around USICA, and uh, th that is sort of the the plan. Now, there's a lot of things we don't know yet about this conference, whether it will be a an actual formal uh, 
conference uh, where both bodies will appoint conferees um, and, and what the scope is, what bill is that you seek a going to conference with from the house side? Is it their, uh, you know, NSF funding uh, bill? Is it, uh, is it, is it more or less uh, than that? Uh, do the revenue pieces uh, actually make it in to the conference? Uh, do they make it out of the conference? So, I mean, there's a, the, the, the conference committee itself is going to uh, have a lot more, uh, has a lot more questions and answers right now. Uh, if it's an informal conference, I think they have more flexibility, uh, but there's also not the sort of uh, reliability and uh, of, of outcome and, and process the way you do in a formal conference committee. Yeah, and if I could just jump in on, on this, um, I, I think that, you know, ultimately, what I hear from a lot of businesses is that there's general support for certain components of this. And, and one provision that is particularly popular uh, is the semiconductor funding piece of, of the legislation. Um, I think a lot of the things in the endless frontiers title that focus the U.S. on research and development and creating diverse manufacturing hubs uh, for critical technologies is very popular. Uh, so I do think ultimately that stuff is going to find its way into law. But as Justin alluded to, it, it is going to be a tricky conference. And one of the items that I do want to flag that I think is going to be one of the trickier ones to deal with is the title, uh, the trade title, which includes provisions that relate to China tariffs. And basically, um, this is another provision that has very strong support from the business community. Um, there are a lot of people who think that the tariff exception process that the Biden administration put into place is far too narrow. The one in the bill is much broader. It automatically reinstates over 2,200 uh, tariff exceptions and then allows companies to petition for all of the rest of the products that are su currently subject to tariffs. So that has a lot of support among the business community, and it was part of the Senate package. And that Trade Act, in fact, passed, I think it was around 91 to, to 5 or something like that. I mean, it was, it was almost unanimous. But there's opposition to that in the House. There's opposition to that from Democrats in particular on the Ways and Means Committee, um, who, are, who are more in line with what the administration has done to date. And that is going to be very tricky, because if you lose that part of the bill, um, then there are some who say the whole Senate, the whole structure of the Senate package and the carefully crafted support falls apart. But on the other hand, so far, our House Democrats have been reluctant to go along with it. So that's something to watch really closely um, that could determine the fate of that overall package. Yep. Thanks, guys. Very interesting and definitely we'll be watching it. So let's move on to the uh, World Trade Organization. The ministerial conference is going to be kicking off at the end of the month. And we know that the WTO director general has laid out a few priorities in the fishery subsidy space and some other things. Um, but we've seen business groups and stakeholders kind of make that familiar call for a broader WTO reform in the appellate board process and then also negotiations. Um, I'm wondering if you guys had any thoughts on the prospects of that or maybe just the uh, the conference in general. I will say that as a, as a general matter, um, unfortunately, I have fairly low expectations for very substantial outcomes at this ministerial conference. And some of the issues that have plagued the institution for years are still um, very clearly in, in focus. And you look at the fishery subsidies negotiation, which would have, you know, has the potential to be the most substantive uh, uh, commitment that anyone makes at this conference. Um, you know, still they are fighting over the level of subsidies that developing countries um, believe that they should be entitled to. 
And this has, again, been a longstanding issue that brings to the fore this developing versus developed country divide at the WTO. And India, you know, as it often does, is, is, is leading the opposition to this, um, you know, on behalf of developing countries. And so I don't know if they get that one across the finish line, but the fact that it has been so hard to do that for so many years really, I think, symbolizes some of the bigger challenges facing the institution. Now, the other area um, that you know is going to be a hot button issue, of course, is this question of whether there's a waiver of the TRIPS agreement um, as it relates to uh, COVID-related uh, products and the most prominently vaccines. It sounds like they're trending away from getting an outcome there that would be a, an actual TRIPS waiver. There might be some fudge so that they can say that they've, they've done something in this area, but it, it is going to fall short of at least what the proponents of that wanted to see, um, you know, putting aside the question of whether or not that would actually be a good thing um, for for fighting the, the, the disease. Um, and the question of reform, there is some talk about sort of starting a work program that would look at reforms moving forward. Um, I think ultimately that would be a very good thing to have. Um, I think generally there's support to do that on dispute settlement, but where it gets tricky is on negotiations. Um, from the view of the United States, you can never really fix dispute settlement unless you also fix negotiations, because the theory is that if negotiators aren't updating the agreements, there will always be an impulse for the adjudicators to overreach and to do it themselves. And so the U.S. believes that these two things need to be done together. Um, but on the other hand, you know, some of the other countries are not keen to see negotiating reform because the only, you know, one of the ways you end up reforming negotiations is either by introducing more plurilateral agreements to which some countries are opposed or revisiting this question of developing country status, which is also tough. Um, so I have low expectations, unfortunately, but hopefully at least they can get in place a work program to have longer conversations about this over time. And maybe just maybe we'll finally get fisheries across this, the finish line. Yeah, I agree with everything that we just said. And just for a little bit of context, um, I left uh, USTR in 2007 and uh, we were negotiating fish subsidies and, you know, hopeful, optimistic for uh, for uh, an agreement on that um, 14, almost 14 years ago, exactly, I think, <laughs> uh, to the date. So th that is both illustrative of how hard it is to get things done at the WTO and the need the need for reform. Yeah, certainly a, a great example there, Justin. Um, so I'd like to pivot quickly to something I find kind of fascinating that I've been thinking more about, um, talking about the Section 232 agreement in steel and aluminum tariffs. Um, it was kind of made indirectly clear that the US and EU wanted to address some of China's unfair trading practices, even though they didn't name China by name. Um, one of those namely being uh, the Chinese steel industry impact on the environment and I kind of have a really broad question for you guys but how do you think companies should be thinking about the government using aspects of trade policy to directly address climate goals um, is this a good tactic for the administration should they use other tools in the toolbox because we've also seen things like carbon border taxes being floated in other pieces of legislation as well so I'm wondering you guys thoughts there so let me put aside just for a second the you know question of whether 232 should be that instrument or not um, I mean, I think there's an argument that it probably shouldn't be, um, and, and many people feel that it was a mistake for the U.S. to go down the path of 232 in, in the first place. But I just want to table that for a second, because I think there's a, a more important overarching issue, which is trade and climate and carbon intensity are rushing headlong at each other, 
they have the potential to lead to massive trade wars between countries around the world as we all look to put in place um, you know, trade measures to deal with the challenge posed by, by climate change. And if we don't start a negotiation on that, it could get very, very ugly. And so I will say, putting aside whether 232 was the right tool or not, and it probably wasn't, um, I do think it's good that the, the administration and European Union are trying to get out ahead of this to start a broader negotiation. And how do you deal with these things in the context of international trade? And I very much hope that this grows to be an initiative that includes a lot of other countries. Um, I think Japan is probably close to being a part of this. Uh, I think the U.S. also needs to find a way to integrate countries like Canada and Mexico and Brazil and Korea, you know, with whom they already have 232 deals and maybe even others. Yeah, I agree. And I, I just want to amplify the point that uh, that Clay made at the top there, which was that uh, I don't I don't think it's a matter of should trade policy uh, be used to address climate change issues. I think the question is, is how do we shape it so that there is a sort of common set of rules and a common understanding of, uh, you know, what is truly climate related and what might be used for industrial policy or protection of sensitive industries, things like that. I think much, much like how tax um, and trade have sort of become entwined a lot over the past decade, tax and climate and trade and climate are all uh, are all bound to be joined together uh, as as we try to figure out how to how to reduce uh, emissions. Similarly, uh, we have infrastructure and uh, the bipartisan infrastructure package finally passed. It's very exciting. Um, I'm wondering if you guys had anything to, to note maybe about its passenger uh, implementation. Um, uh, not really, more so than it, what it unlocks and the rest of the agenda sort of package. I mean, we've been sort of hanging in limbo here uh, going back to, I guess, July, uh, the linkage to the reconciliation bill, um, how this all sort of works together or works separately. But, I, you know, I think that one, one thing that we have consistently heard on the trade side is a reluctance to engage in new trade agreements and market access until uh, we've invested properly in America. Um, and that's been a very vague comment that Ambassador Tai and, and others in the administration have made. But, uh, you know, from my perspective, you know, a trillion dollars in infrastructure spending is, is a significant investment. And if the administration chooses to interpret it as a significant investment uh, and as it relates to their rhetoric on you know, holding off on on new trade agreements and forward more trade liberalizing aspects of, of trade policy, that this would be a, certainly an opportunity for them to do so now that that has been enacted. I'm not holding my breath until at least the outcome of reconciliation is is uh, is known, but um, I do think it does it does at least allow the questions sort of to be asked. Have we invested enough in America this this year to start really pushing on trade policy? Great. Thank you for that. And also kind of finishing up here, we know that President Biden is meeting with uh, the Mexican president and Canadian president today uh, and this week. Do you guys think there's going to be any updates on the USMCA front or maybe anything that comes out of that meeting between the three presidents? Yeah, I don't think it's a, it, it, you know, it's certainly not the focus uh, of the meeting. Um, there's a lot uh, of other items on the, on the agenda here. Uh, I do think that there are uh, issues particularly on the U.S.-Mexico side that relate to USMCA 
that I have no doubt will be raised uh, and discussed. But if you just take sort of a look around and see where the U.S. Uh, 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 trade and international econ team teams are, they're not in Washington today. Secretary Mundo and Ambassador Tai are both in uh, are both in in Asia, uh, so it's clearly not a sort of ministerial type meeting where uh, there would be sort of breakouts uh, in any sort of in any sort of meaningful way. Um, but I do think that you know it's an opportunity for uh, Canada and Mexico to talk about uh, the U.S. Uh, interpretation uh, on uh, on on auto rules uh, that is currently under uh, or subject to consultations. Uh, I think it will be an opportunity for the U.S., Canada to really press Mexico on on uh, on, on power and electricity uh, issues uh, in, in Mexico that uh, are are viewed as questionably uh, being implemented and, and considered in the light of USMCA obligations. Uh, and there's biotech and a few others. So I think, you know, I, I'm not sure what if it will be an exhaustive list, but um, it seems uh, it seems pretty clear that uh, there will be at least some discussion on, uh, you know, uh, where various parties are falling short of uh, expectations uh, uh, on USMCA obligations. I don't have anything to add. Justin killed it. (laughs) Well, that's a great uh, thank you guys so much again for uh, participating today. Uh, A lot of stuff to watch as always, uh, but thank you guys both again. Thanks. Great to be with you as always. Yep. My pleasure.